Well, I want to welcome you to both of our campuses today, and I want to begin by telling you a very, very true story. The English ship called the Bounty, commanded by a Lieutenant William Blythe, journeyed to the South Pacific in the summer of 1787 uh, to do a little research and to collect samplings of tropical plants and all that sort of a thing. And, and the sailors gladly signed on to this project because they thought that they were making a trip literally to a paradise island in the South Pacific. And having no second in command, Captain Blythe appointed his young friend, a certain Mr. Fletcher Christian to be his second in command. The bounty stayed uh, or left England and sailed through the summer months and actually stayed on the island of what has become known as Tahiti for about six months deep in the South Pacific. Uh, and the sailors, while there, led by the happy-go-lucky uh, Mr. Fletcher, uh, Captain, uh, Captain's right-hand man, uh, they enjoyed the Paradise Island to the full if you know what I mean. And so when it came time for departure, some of the men wanted to stay behind with the island girls. And on the day of departure, three men actually uh, went awry and kind of fled and uh, tried to make their way into the island. And, and of course, Captain Blythe sent out a party to search for them. They found them, brought them back, had them flogged and beaten. But the mood of the ship, as you can well imagine, turned dark. And it was April 28, 1789, that Fletcher Christian, stage one of the most famous mutinies in all of shipping history. Now in charge of the, the bounty, the new captain, Fletcher Christian, decided to spare the life of his former friend and ally, Captain Blythe, and he gave Captain Blythe a little lifeboat and the few people who were loyal to him loaded up with a few little supplies and they literally pushed out into the South Sea. Now, miraculously, Listen to this. Miraculously, uh, Captain Blythe was able to steer that little overcrowded lifeboat some 3,700 miles across the ocean to Timor, which is a small island off, the south, uh, uh, off of South Indonesia. But that's not the most interesting part of the story. Listen to this. The mutineers led by the second in command, right now in command, Fletcher Christian, began quarreling among themselves and no one really seemed to know exactly what to do to keep this, you know, uh, little colony afloat to, to survive. Uh, eventually, they returned back to the island of Tahiti where some of the mutineers parted way with Fletcher Christian, but Christian himself decided to flee to another, what he thought to be a deserted island. He kidnapped a bunch of native island women and took some slaves with him and literally sailed a thousand miles across the South Pacific to another island called the Pickering uh, Island. And you can go Google these, it's amazing. Uh, there, are, there, this little group quickly became unraveled. They learned how to distill whiskey from some of the native plants and literally drunkenness and fighting kind of ensued and marked their colony. Uh, disease and murder literally ended the life of every single man except one man, a man named um, Alexander Smith. He found himself to be the only man on a deserted island full of native women and a bunch of children. So some of y'all are going, woo, lucky guy, right? I don't know, because quickly this guy, Alexander Smith, uh, began to feel the weight of survival. He understood very quickly that the only way this colony would survive is if he could somehow manage to lead them to survival. Uh, and, and so he became desperate, he became despondent, and this amazing little change occurred one day. He was nearing the end of his rope, he had no supplies left, and he was literally scavenging every crack and crevice of the bounty ship. And he came across this 
little cabinet area with a tiny little drawer that he had never opened before. And he opens the door, and in it he finds the Bounty's Bible. It was customary at that time that ships would travel with a singular Bible on board, right? Uh, to kind of be the, the protection to signify somehow that it was a Christian ship. And so he finds this long neglected Bible and Alexander Smith, who was not known to be a Bible sort of a guy, begins to actually read the Bible for himself. And as he begins to read the Bible, he begins to have this kind of change of heart something begins to shift inside of him and he finds himself believing these words. And he makes a decision that his little colony would put into practice as much as they could find out from the words of Jesus. They would put them into practice and follow the leadership the best that they could uh, of, of the scriptures. Now, now listen to this. The message of Christ so transformed this little colony that some 20 years later, when they were discovered by a passing ship called the Topaz, they, when the captain of the Topaz comes a, 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 to shore of this little you know, deserted island with this small little colony on there, um, he, he discovers something, and he writes in his memoirs this little saying. Listen to this. He, he talks about finding Alexander Smith's colony, and this is what he writes. Quote, a happy little society of Christians I found living in prosperity and peace, free of crime, disease, murder, and mutiny. Hmm. Something changed. Something shifted in their hearts. Something moved inside of them. Now, friends, follow me on this. Uh, years later, this lone Bible falls into the hands of an American who brings it back stateside and ends up putting it inside of a museum. It stayed inside of an American museum until 1950. Get this. It was a prized possession in this museum until somebody from the Pickering Island comes along and sees this Bible and knows the backstory and requests that this Bible be taken back with him to his island. And today, that Bible, since 1950, has been placed inside of the Pickering Community Bible Church. And it stands there to this day, listen, friends, as a testimony to the saving power or the transformation power of the Bible for these people. Now, friends, listen. Friends, everybody dial in up here for a second. I get it. Uh, we're in this series where we're talking about doubts. We're talking about struggles. And there are folks in this room who do not understand why people like me love the Bible so much. They, they doubt the Bible to be true. They, they doubt that it is something to do with God. They doubt that, uh, they don't often doubt that it has changed people's lives. They can look at that and they go, okay, that person believes and it has somehow affected them. They don't doubt necessarily that it's a moral book even or a book full of good teaching. But what they doubt is, is this God's word? Is this, is this, does this have God's hand in the middle of it all? And friends, I think this is worth our conversation because in this series called I Don't Believe, we're going after the tough questions. And I think these tough questions deserve honest and thoughtful answers. And friends, listen, I don't pretend to be able to convince any of you to change your mind in any direction, not at all. And I don't pretend to be smarter than any of you or wiser than any of you, but I do hope to be able to give you some things to think about deeply things that might move you along. Maybe if you doubt, maybe if you come into this space and uh, you might be an agnostic or an atheist or you might believe in God but not necessarily believe in the Christian faith. My, my hope is for you that you'll be able to take some steps toward what I, to be, what I believe to be God's word and the God found in the Bible. Um, 
I think it's a journey worth taking. I think it's an exercise worth talking about. And so today, um, we're, we're talking about this idea of the Bible. Can it be trusted? Because people say, like, I don't know if I can trust it. It's so old. It's so antiquated. It's so out of date. There's so many contradictions in it. There's so many uh, doubts, and some people write this, and some people write that. And so where's the truth, and how can we even know the truth? People say, well, how do I even you know, know where the Bible came from? You know, what's the history behind it? And sort of all of these questions. And so we're going to spend a couple of weeks talking about this. Not just this week. We're going to spend a couple of weeks talking about it. And I'm just going to kind of uh, tip my hand up front. And I know you shouldn't do this as a speaker, but I'm just going to tell you my goal. Just going to tell you my goal as the, as the preacher today, okay? And it's very, very simple. My goal, if you come into this space and you're not like a believer and you don't believe the whole Bible thing to be God's word, all that kind of stuff, my goal isn't that you walk out loving the Bible and you're going to like, ooh, it changed my whole life. That's not my goal today. My, my goal is this, is that if you come in with this set of doubts toward the Bible, that you'll at least walk out of here going, I got to admit that it's at least a different sort of a book, that it's not just a book, that it's not like any other book. And my hope is, listen, my hope is, is that it'll go even beyond that for you. That, that you'll even realize it may be even a special book where God's hand is involved with it. That's what my hope is. And, and so let me just take you on a little bit of a, of a journey today. And I, I want to just read one simple verse from the Bible that speaks about itself. And I realize, listen, if I'm going to talk about the validity of the Bible, I don't want to use the Bible to validate itself. I, I get that, right? And, and so, uh, but I just want you to know that this is how people like me view the Bible. This is how people like me understand the Bible to speak of itself and why we hold it so dear to our hearts. And so if you're a doubter, I just want you to hear this, okay? Here's what it says in the book of Hebrews chapter 4. One verse, verse 12, it simply says, for the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. The Bible says of itself that it's not just dead words on a page. That, that, it, that it's alive, that it's active, that it's life transforming, that it's life changing, that, that listen, when you get into God's word, what I consider to be God's word, when you get into the Bible, that it penetrates in ways that no other book can, that it moves you in ways that no other book can, that it, that it speaks to the soul in a way that no other book can, that it, that it looks deep into the heart of a man or the heart of a woman, and it reveals something about us. It's alive. It divides truth from a lie. Right from wrong. And people like me, Christians like many of you in this room, this is what we believe. That it is from God. And my hope is if you come in here and you're not there yet, that at least you will be willing to hear the story of the Bible. And so what I would like to do, if it's okay with you, is I just want to take us on a little bit of a historical journey. And the first thing I want to do is I just want to answer the question, how did we get this thing? Why do we even care about this? How did it land in our hands? And so I just want to take you through a walk of history.
Let's talk about how the Word of God was brought to us. The scripture says that the grass of the field withers away and the flowers fall, but the Word of God remains forever. I want to take you on an amazing journey of the story of the Bible. And we're not going to talk so much about what the Bible has to say as much as we are going to talk about how it was brought to us because it is an amazing thing that God has done to preserve the book called the Bible for us. You see, the story begins some 1,500 years before the time of Christ when God appeared to Moses in the Sinai Desert on, on the mountaintop where literally he, he writes out the Ten Commandments on these tablets of stone, Ten Laws of God, Ten Precepts on How to Do Life. And God literally delivers them to this man named Moses. Some years later, God gave Moses the very first pages of scripture, and they were collected into a series of books called the Pentateuch. These are the first five books of our Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. These original works were written in the ancient Hebrews text, and they were collected on scrolls. These scrolls were dried animal skins, where a scribe, a scribe was someone who, whose job it was to meticulously record every word in the Bible. They would write on these skins made of deer or, uh, or cow or, or lamb, but never a pig because using a pig skin would be considered unclean for Hebrew people. And what's interesting is that when the entire Pentateuch was collected into one scroll, that singular scroll would be called a Torah. Now, when that Torah scroll was unraveled or unrolled, it would be over 150 foot in length. This was a very expensive collection because it would take an entire flock of sheep to make just one Torah scroll. About 500 BC, the 39 books of the Old Testament part of the Bible that we hold in our hands today were completed and have been preserved in the Hebrew language on these scrolls. At the end of the first century, just a few short years after the death of Christ, the New Testament part of the Bible, the 27 books that make up the New Testament were completed and have been preserved in the Greek language on papyrus. Papyrus is a paper-like material that was made out of crushed reeds flattened out to be writable paper. Then over the next couple centuries, many historical figures mentioned by name the various works of scriptures in their various writings. This gave credibility to the early acceptance of the scriptures. Then in 367 AD, the Bishop of Alexandria, a man named Athanasius, wrote a letter that went out to all of the emerging Christian churches throughout the world. And in this letter, it contained a list of the complete works of the Bible that we hold today. Then a few years later, in 393 AD, there was a great gathering of Christian leaders throughout the globe. They called this gathering the Synod of Hippo. The word Synod simply means council, and they met in the city of Hippo in Northern Africa. And in attendance at this meeting was a man named Augustine. Augustine was a great philosopher, theologian, and an early church leader. You may know him by the name of Saint Augustine. We may talk about his influence later, but needless to say, his influence was monumental. He was clearly one of the great influences, not only in the church, but in all of Western civilization. 
And at this conference, the early church leaders adopted and approved the final list of all the books that we hold in our Bible today. And the process they used was simple and straightforward to determine which books would find its way into the New Testament part of the Bible. They wanted to make sure that the books were from God, not just written by man, but inspired by God. And the first thing that they decided to to put on this list of criteria was, were the books written by people who walked with Jesus? Were they written by the apostles or people who directly knew the apostles? They wanted to make sure, in other words, that these books carried the authoritative word of God directly from Jesus. And the second criteria was, were these books readily accepted by the early church? In other words, they wanted people who could confirm that these events actually happened. They wanted people who could confirm that this is what Jesus said and what Jesus did and what was taught by the earliest apostles. And the third criteria was, did these books contain consistent teaching? In other words, did they line up with all the other teachings from all the other books? And the fourth criteria was, did these books contain an authoritative moral feel that was consistent with the Holy Spirit. In other words, they wanted to make sure that the Bible held a lofty view of God, that these writings held up the holiness of God, and this would be sensed by all believers throughout the world. They wanted to make sure that it resonated with the voice of God. Now, this is really important to understand. Ultimately, we do not believe that man put the Bible together at all. We believe that it was God and God alone who determined what belonged in the Bible. Now, we would all have to admit that people don't agree about much, but you put together a bunch of theologians into one room, you're not going to get them to agree about much of anything. And so I want you to think about what God had to do in order to bring us to the point of accepting this book called the Bible, to bring all believers from all walks of life, from all parts of the planet, from all color groups and ethnic groups and cultural groups and educational groups, all throughout the globe, Christians have readily accepted this book as the authoritative word of God. That would take an act of God. By the year 500 AD, the Bible had already been translated into over 500 different languages. Think about how amazing this is. Much of the world was completely illiterate at this time, and yet the Bible, by the year 500, had been translated into almost every common language on planet Earth. Think about how amazing this is. It's almost like it was divine. No printing press, no Google translation, no easy mode of communication just a determination bred deep in the heart of people to give this very special book to as many people as possible. God was at work in all of this. And people all over the globe were thankful to have the Word of God in a language they could understand. A hundred years later, the most remarkable thing happened all over the globe. In the year 600 AD, a decree went out stating that the Bible could only be possessed in one language. How does this happen? Well, at that time, the, the world only had one official church. 
the Catholic Church. And the Catholic Church was ruled out of Rome by the Pope. And the Pope issued a decree that, that the Bible could only be heard and read and possessed in one language, and that would be in Latin. Anybody found with any Bible other than the Latin Bible could be executed on the spot. Thus the church began their official policy of banning and burning Bibles that were found in any other language than Latin. And how could this happen? Well, unfortunately, at this time, the Catholic Church became very, very corrupt. The priests were the only ones who knew the Latin language, and this gave them an extraordinary power over the people. The people could not read God's word for themselves. And so the priests could conveniently, for their own benefit, add to the scripture or take away. They would conveniently add things that were never intended to be in the scripture. For example, the church began to teach about this idea of indulgences. The idea of an indulgence is that you could buy the forgiveness of your sin. The church began to teach that um, you could never quite know if you were truly forgiven, but if you had enough money, you could go to the Catholic priest and literally buy forgiveness. You didn't have to stop sinning. You could simply continue to indulge. Another concept the church started to teach that was unbiblical was this idea of purgatory. Purgatory is a word that's not even found in the Bible. The concept isn't found, and, and of course, Jesus never embraced it in any way, but it was this idea that there is this landing place between heaven and hell that if you were good, but not quite good enough or bad, but not quite bad enough, in other words, you wouldn't land in heaven or hell, you would land in this middle ground, this place they called purgatory. And the idea was taught that you could literally buy your deceased loved ones into heaven uh, because eventually all those in purgatory would be dumped into hell. And of course, you didn't want anybody to go to hell. And so like if we were in modern day language, it would be if grandma was to die and grandma was, you know, she wasn't a saint, but she wasn't the devil either. And so she would land in this place called purgatory. But for $99.99, you could literally buy her way into heaven. Now, this sort of forced ignorance was manufactured by the priests for, for literally centuries because they, they did not allow the people to have the Bible in their own language. Um, and this era between 400 AD and 1400 AD, that thousand years became known as the Dark Ages. So you may be wondering, how did the church ever escape this long, dark, and evil corruption that so possessed it for so many years? Well, the truth is, is that God used his word to change people. And when God's word started getting into the hands of enough men and women and the right hands, God used it to bring about the necessary reforms of the church. I want you to see how God preserved his word. It's an incredible story. Our history books are full of the stories of men and women who were willing to give their lives to hand the Bible to us. Let's check this out. So here's how it happened. In 563 AD, there was a man named Columba. And not Columbus, that's a whole different guy in history, but Columba started a secret Bible society, a secret Bible school where, uh, where, where he would teach the Word of God accurately and faithfully from one generation to the next. As a matter of fact, literally this group of people became God's remnant on 
earth. Uh, the students in this society were, they were called Chaldees, which literally means a certain stranger, a certain stranger in this world. And so these certain strangers became the faithful protectors of God's word. They literally hid God's word. They, they restored God's word and they, they transferred it from student to student for almost seven hundred years. What an incredible thing that these men and women would lay their lives on the line so that they could hand the next generation the scriptures. In fact, it was out of this group that God would eventually raise up people who would lead what was to later become the Protestant Reformation. In the early 1300s, God used a man named John Wycliffe in tremendous ways. I mean, unbelievable ways. John Wycliffe was the man who God used to translate the entire Bible into English. And this changed the world. All of a sudden, people who could never read God's word for themselves were able to bring it into their own home, into their own hearts, and into their own minds. Incredible. At this time in history, it would take about 10 months for one of these students to write a single handwritten copy of the Bible. Unbelievable amount of work. But Wycliffe and his fellow followers of Christ, they were faithful to God's word. This was hard and tedious work, but unfortunately Wycliffe was labeled a heretic by the Catholic Church and was sentenced to death. As a matter of fact, 44 years after his death, the Pope at that time was so incensed by what John Wycliffe had done to bring the Bible into the English language that he ordered his bones be dug up, crushed, burned, and then spread across the river. Many people labeled John Wycliffe as the morning star of the Reformation. What a beautiful expression, the morning star, the one who gave birth to the Reformation. Most certainly God used John Wycliffe in incredible ways. But John Wycliffe also had another student. His name was John Huss. John Huss picked up where his teacher left off, and he was equally as passionate about getting the Word of God, the Bible, into as many hands as humanly possible. But unfortunately, Huss was branded as a heretic by the Pope and was ordered to be burned at the stake. And what do you think they used to burn Huss at the stake? This is the sad and ironic truth. They used the handwritten English copies of his teacher, John Wycliffe. They took these handwritten copies, they put it around the stake and lit it ablaze. But Huss's final words became a prophecy that was later fulfilled and it literally turned the world around. He said as he was being burned alive that in the next 100 years, God would raise up a man whose call for reform would not be suppressed. And that's exactly what happened. And this is exactly what God did. In 1517, God raised up a new man named Martin Luther. Martin Luther became so fed up with the corruption in the church that he felt God calling him to literally reform the church. And it was on All Hallows Eve, 1517, that Martin Luther wrote a letter that became known as the 95 Theses. This letter, he took it and nailed it to the door of the Wittenberg Catholic Church. This letter listed 95 false teachings that he thought the church had gone astray on, 95 things that the church was teaching wrong, and he decided that it was time for a change. And God used this letter of accusation of false teaching in incredible ways. He used it to spark what has become known as the Great Protestant Reformation. Metro, our little church here, is part of the heritage of Martin Luther's bold and risky faith. 
Martin Luther eventually went on to partner with a man named Gutenberg, and he used this new invention called the printing press to literally print the Bible for the masses. And now the common man could hold the Bible in his own hand. Martin Luther ended up translating the Bible into German uh, from English, and God used it in incredible ways. But sadly, Luther was labeled a heretic as well, and a death sentence was put on his head. He actually lived the rest of his life running from the authorities. But it could be said that you and I holding a Bible in our hands, you and I sitting in a church like this, freely teaching all of the Word of God is directly related to Martin Luther's risk-taking faith. Martin Luther had a young student named John Coley who became a great preacher in London, England. He, he preached at St. Paul's Cathedral. But what made Coley so unique was that he was the first among many to follow who would preach his message in English. And this made the church incredibly mad. But I want you to think about this. By the mid-1500s, St. Paul's Cathedral would have over 20,000 people coming to church in one sitting, in one sitting. And what was more remarkable than that was that there were 20,000 more waiting outside for a second service. They would line the streets of London, the history books would say. So God used Coley's incredibly bold move to preach in English. He used it in incredible ways. But sadly, you can go to that church today and that beautiful church is still standing. But the sad part is, is that no longer does it have 20,000 people on a weekend. They might have 200 in worship on a weekend and most of those are not anything more than tourists looking for an experience. At the same time that God was using Martin Luther in Germany, God was raising up a new man in England by the name of William Tyndale. William Tyndale also contracted with Gutenberg and had him print the Bible in English. And he did everything he could to bring the Bible into English, into the common man, right? Well, the, that's the good news. But the bad news was, of course, that anybody caught with an English Bible was executed immediately. But you can imagine the demand for one of these Bibles. Uh, people wanted to read it in their own language. And so they got very creative in how they delivered the Bibles into England. Uh, Tyndale was famous for taking entire uh, bales of hay or haystacks and, and hiding Bibles in the middle, or he would take it and wrap it in wool, or he would pack in 50-pound flour bags. He would put a Bible right in the middle of it, all to get the Word of God into the common man's language. Now, what was ironic here was that the the, the, the chief buyer or the, the biggest customer for Tyndale's English Bibles were the king's men. You see, the king had ordered that all these Bibles be confiscated and burned, and so Tyndale kind of used the king as a profit mechanism. He was a smart businessman. He literally kind of set up a little system of, of, of illegally selling Bibles to the king's men, and the king's men would burn them, but he would in turn take those profits and go back to Germany and buy more Bibles in English to give away to the common people. God used Tyndale in incredible ways. But sadly, he too was labeled a heretic, and the king ordered his death. Can you imagine living every day on the run? Day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, moving your family uh, just to stay alive. But Tyndale was so committed to God's word that he felt it was, it was worth the price he had to pay. 
Well, eventually, the King of England, King James, caught up to him, and he had him arrested, and he spent two solid years in jail. The king couldn't quite figure out what to do with him because he was so loved by the people. Well, eventually, King James ordered his execution. He was burned at the stake. But before he was burned at the stake, he prayed a prayer much like John Huss. John Huss prayed, God, would you raise up someone in the next hundred years that would start a reformation? Well, Tyndale, he prayed, God, would you open the eyes of the King of England? Ironically enough, three years later, the King of England, King James, ordered that the first legal printing of the English Bible be done. And this became known as the King James Bible. And the Word of God, for the first time, was truly set free. Since that day, this book we call the Bible has been banned and burned and assaulted. It's been labeled as fictitious and flawed, and yet it lives on. Billions and billions of people still find a pathway to God through, through the words found on its pages. Billions of people find hope in the times of brokenness in their lives. I want you to think about this. Remember all that God had to do in order to preserve the Bible for you. Think about all that people had to go through, how people had to give their lives and fight with everything that they have in order to preserve the words of Scripture for us. They would stop at nothing to hand it to the next generation. And yet, so many people, sadly, shaka, we neglect the Word of God. I would think that we could all agree that in the very least, the Bible is just different. It's not just another book. And some of us would, would probably be even moved to say, it's special. It's more than unique. It is, it's special. There's something about it. I want you to think about this. We, as a culture, we don't sit around and debate Oprah Winfrey's latest book. We don't sit around and dive into Fifty Shades of Grey and go, oh, what does it mean? You know, what do we, what do you? There's something about this book that has been driving at the heartbeat of humanity from the days it was penned. In the very least, it is unique. It is special. And yet, for, let me just uh, talk to the believer in the room for a moment. If you are a Christian, just dial up here for a moment. We would never expect those outside of the church to to embrace this book. We would, we, would, we would expect them to neglect it. We would expect them not to care deeply about it. But for those of us in the church, there's a problem. We, we often neglect it. Even though that we know it, it drives us to the God of the Bible, it drives us to the God that the Bible speaks of. And yet you and I often neglect it. For, for, for example, how, how many in the room would say you own a copy of the Bible? Anybody in the room own a copy of the Bible? How, okay. How many have more than one copy of the Bible? Anybody? More than one? Uh, how, how many have it on your smartphone or your smart pads or whatever? Okay, most of us. But if I was asked a question, how many of you have not read your Bible in the last week? I'm talking to believers. You're the last week or two in your life, at least a time or two in the last week. 
I bet your hands would go up all over the place. And yet, we say this is really important to us. I want to share just one little verse of scripture. David, in his life, was uh, trying to figure out what grounded him, what what kept him center. Uh, He, like probably you and me, had a million different things vying for the attention of his soul. Uh, So many things tempting him and pulling at him, probably a lot like you and me. And this is what he ends up writing near the end of his life. These are his words. He says, I delight in your decrees. I will not, what is this word? I will not neglect. Come on. I will not neglect your word. I won't neglect it. This word neglect uh, comes from the Hebrew word shaka. Say that, shaka. Yeah, that's where we get shakaan from. I don't know, I'm just making it up. Uh, but this word shakaw literally means to neglect or to lay aside, to forget, to take something for granted, to neglect it. And, and David comes along and says, because I believe, because I'm driven to, to, the, to God because of these words, I will not neglect it. I will not forget it. I will not lay it aside. I will not take it for granted. I will not neglect it. So let me just bring everybody back into this discussion. If you are in this room and you're a Christian, I want you to hear me. If you're not a believer or if you're just kind of going, I don't really know if I can buy into this whole Bible thing, let me just talk to you, everybody, just for a second. Pay, pay up attention here. Like, dial in, okay? Here it is. I think one of the greatest proofs against the Bible that people who, who say, I struggle to believe is people who say they believe in the God of the Bible and yet don't live out the things in the Bible. I think one of the greatest proofs against the Bible is that those people like me who say it drives me to the heart of God, this is what I believe, where I get my name Christian from. I think one of the greatest proofs against the Bible is when people like me neglect the Bible and we don't read it and take it into our homes and into our families and into our lives. Shakah. We should not neglect it. So here's what I like to do. Um, I, I know that I like, not, haven't really offered any convincing proofs. That's not my point for the day. I just want you to know how it shapes people, how it's different. Next week, we're going to talk about the contradictions and the science and the archaeology, all that stuff behind it. But I want you to walk away understanding that this is different. And I want you to know how it changes an individual life. Watch this. I grew up in a household that no little girl belonged in. Um, I had more of a nightmare beginning than a fairy tale beginning. And um, There was abuse in my household and neglect, and I was just a broken little girl. This may shock some of you, but by the tender age of only five years old, I was introduced to child pornography and forced into it. And you see, just one traumatic event can cause post-traumatic stress disorder. And um, for me, I had too many of those events to even count. And at the brave age of just 11 years old, I ran away from home and I started a new life for myself. 
I learned to hitchhike and I made some friends and um, made my way out of state where I um, actually kind of got adopted into this family. And when I say adopted, I kind of spent the night there so many times that I never left. It would only be six months later, at just 15 years old, that I would find myself pregnant by her older brother. I was, I was used to not having enough. I was used to just surviving and barely making it. Um, but for my baby, this life was not gonna be good enough for him. I couldn't raise him with these drug addicts and these alcoholics. Um, so I made the brave decision again to um, leave there pregnant. It was at that time that I um, got introduced to the welfare system and I became a legal adult at just 15 years old and pregnant. And I was able to get my own place for my son and I, and we were doing really well, and um, things were just happier than they had ever been. I felt freedom, and I felt safe. Um, it was at this time that I was introduced um, to a girl who worked in a bar, and she asked me if I would want this bar job waitressing, and I was, thought it was a great idea at the time. And it was in this bar where I met the man that I thought had it all together. It was the man on the bar stool. Um, it would be six months after meeting him that we would be married. And I would come to find out that I married a very violent, controlling, alcoholic sex addict. And um, I was planning to get out of this marriage, but ended up fighting for my very life. I had a brain aneurysm rupture, and um, I ended up in emergency brain surgery. When I woke up, I felt like I heard God speak very clearly to me that He saved me because He has a purpose for my life. As I was healing that first year, that first two years was really rough, I got brave enough to get into counseling, and I found this awesome counselor who specialized in sexual trauma, and it was there that I heard for the first time that it wasn't my fault. Um, I was able to tell my story and speak all of those things out loud. I felt empowered and I could feel God healing me and doing an amazing work in me. And I prayed fervently every single day that God would give me direction and freedom. And God started speaking to me. And I would start to listen to sermons on the radio and I was hearing his word for the very first time in my life. You see, I had this praying relationship with him and he would speak to me, but I didn't know what was in his word. So I get my first Bible at 31 and I'm basically incapable of reading because I only had a second, third grade reading and writing level. So for me, reading the Bible seemed near to impossible. But as God was, was making these changes in me, and I was dedicating my life to Him and following Him, He started to give me these abilities that I didn't even know were possible to have. Um, I knew they were coming from Him. I was this shy, broken little girl, and He was making me be bolder than I wanted to be, and riskier, and in and, telling on people. Um, there were so many times where I was able to just tell on people instead of keeping these secrets. I was no longer a secret keeper, but I was freed from all of that. So I finally had the freedom to leave this marriage and leave it well. And I felt that I had the freedom for the first time to walk away 
and to start my life all over again with God directing my footsteps. So um, I was able to go back to school and become a counselor and a chaplain, which is so dear to my heart. And I'm able to help other people who have been in bondage and have been abused. Um, I've, I've been able to help them get free as well. And I met the most amazing man, the man of my dreams, and we have been happily married since 2002. Um, this is the kind of marriage that is honoring to God. Uh, we, we build each other up and we pursue God together. Um, we do mission work together and um, we teach together. And he has been an amazing father to both of my children. With each passing year, we actually fall more in love with each other. One of the most powerful things that I learned in counseling is that I am not my story. That all of these things happened to me, all of these traumas and these, these events were my story, but I am not my story. And um, that was freeing to me because I was no longer attached to my past, but I could have hope and a clear vision for my future. If there is anything that I would hope that you could get from my story, it would be that um, Satan is the father of lies. And as a little girl, I grew up just believing lies. And those lies carried on because they kept, they kept getting um, reaffirmed by the world. And it wasn't until I got my first Bible at the age of 31 years old and started diving into the Word of God. And I could clearly see that what I was taught from the time I was a little girl was simply all a lie. And I was able to take God's word and compare it to all of these lies and anything that had been spoken over me that did not line up with the word of God, I learned to dismiss. This was not an easy process. Um, this took me years and years. I couldn't trust myself in my own thoughts because I would naturally want to believe a lie. So I had to, um, I had to have a complete renewing of my mind. And I needed, to, I needed to really focus on God's Word and, and not just believe it was true, but live as though it was true. People say that they don't understand what they're reading when they read the Bible. And what I would say to you is focus on the parts that you do understand. If you just focused on what you do understand, you would have, have enough growth and healing tools to last you the rest of your life. I hear people say, oh, I can't pronounce the words. I don't know these names. And what I would say to you is get on version, get the Bible app and start hearing the Bible be played to you. And before long, these words will become familiar to you. So when you are reading the Bible, you will automatically know what they are. That worked great for me. And one of the other things that I often hear um, people say is I don't remember what I read when I read the Bible, I forget so quickly. And what I would say to you is I don't remember what I had for dinner yesterday, but it still nourished my body. So the Word of God will nourish your soul whether you remember what you read or not, but you have to start somewhere so that you can understand the difference between a lie and the truth. Because we wanna live by God's truth. And if we don't know what His truth is, we're easily deceived. Wow.
near the end of his life, David continued to write. He was looking back at, um, at a life full of poor decisions, a life that, you know, had a lot of regrets. And I don't know about you, but my guess is that every single one of us has regrets. Every single one of us has made a decision that looking back, we go, man, I wish I would have taken it a different direction. And, and David is getting around this idea of what has anchored him, what keeps him on the right path, what keeps him in the right direction in his life. And he ends up writing this little phrase. It's very, very popular throughout humanity. It's one of the verses I memorized when I was a little kid. And he, and he says it like this. He says, your word, the word of God, the Bible, it's a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. When, when I was a kid, um, we, we lived in this kind of poor little neighborhood and the houses were real tiny, kind of crammed in with each other. And uh, two hippie dudes moved in next to us. This is in the 1970s, right? And uh, these guys were kind of wild, but they were Christian guys. And uh, I remember their names. They were Mark Oshesky and Tom Nagel. And uh, I haven't seen these guys in 30 or 35 years. But I remember what they used to do. They, they, were, they were believers and they, they understood that the thing that would guide this young kid throughout their life, his life was, was the word of God. And so they would offer me and my brothers a nickel every time we would memor, memorize a verse, a nickel. And so we were smart businessmen. We started with the smallest verses, <laughs> the shortest verse, like Jesus wept. And we would start there, you know, and then they would pay us a nickel every time we would say the same one, as long as we delivered it with the new one. And so I'm milking this guy for everything he's got, right? Because a nickel back in the 70s, that was hard cash. That was hard cash. But the reason they invested in me like that was they knew that hard times were going to come and decisions were going to come and life was going to get crazy and life was going to get hard and there would be all kinds of things that were going to pull me. And that like the latest Dr. Oz book or the Dr. Phil book or the Oprah book was not going to anchor my life. I needed something more than that. I needed something more than even my own deep thoughts. And they invested in me. And they warned me not to shaka. They warned me not to neglect it. Because all of the world is coming against your soul. Shaka. Don't neglect it. Don't set it aside. For those of us who believe, it is our lifeblood. It keeps us connected to our God. And for those of you who are coming in here and you're like in the not convinced category, we are so glad that you're here. And I know that we didn't get around this, you know, like deep thing that's going to change your belief. My hope was is that you would just realize that this is unique, that this is special. Next week, you come and we're going to dive deep into figuring out why it is that we can trust the Bible to be true. Okay? Y'all good with this? Okay? Uh, if it's okay with you, uh, you know, we're a church and uh, we pray around here. It's normal. It's not weird. And so I would just invite all of you out of respect for each other and for what's going on here. Can we just bow our heads for a moment? And let me just close this out in, in prayer. So Father in heaven, um, I know that in this space here today, I know that there are all kinds of people with all kinds of walks, all kinds of different views. God, I pray that they would 
realize that they are welcomed here. But God, I also pray that your spirit would speak to them. God, that somehow your spirit would come alive to them and that you would begin to reveal yourself to them, that they would take next steps in at least investigating this thing called the Bible. Maybe they would even, for the first time or in a long time, they would open it up and read. And God, that you would just speak to them through that. We invite you here, God. In Jesus' name we say, amen. Amen.